What a great weekend. Hope you've had fun with your family and enjoyed this Christmas. I was reflecting as I drove in this morning. I went, turned on the radio, and there wasn't any Christmas music on the station I normally listen to. And, and so I went to my phone and pulled up the last playlist, and it was still Christmas. And I listened to a couple, and then I thought, okay, you got to give it up at some point and switch to a different playlist to listen to one of my favorite worship songs. And I just thought, it, what, a, what an interesting experience that when we started planning the Christmas season back last summer and then started really nailing things down in August and September, it seemed like it was so far away. I mean, it just, you know, we would be in these planning meetings and we'd be talking about things and talking about the series and it's like, it's so hard. It's so hard to think of Christmas in August and in Southeast Texas, it's 102. Well, God shined his grace on us and allowed us to have summer weather at Christmas, I guess, to carry that over. But now it's like everything seems like it's just come to an end. I mean, it's like all the thoughts and all the plans and all the anticipation and everything. And then now, you know, I'm changing the playlist back to my regular worship playlist because Christmas is over. Um, we get a little bit of advantage because we'll start it again in August. We'll start planning in August for next Christmas because there's only one thing that'll keep Christmas from happening next year. And that is that the king that we've been studying will come back. And we won't have to celebrate when he came the first time because we're going with him and we're out of here. And we're spending Christmas with Jesus in heaven if that happens. And we live every day looking forward to it. We, we anticipate it. We believe it. He's promised he'll come back. And we trust in that. And we look forward to that moment. So when we were doing all the planning and as everything developed, we wanted to take the story of the king just a little past Christmas. Not, not just because I'm reflecting and, and reminiscent and, and sort of sad that this really wonderful season is kind of coming to a close. But we wanted to think about and contemplate what our lives should look like as a result of Christmas, as, as a result of the story of the king. Yes, the king has been born with all the, the glory of angels and all the, the amazing demonstrations of love with out-of-touch out of people and, and non-leaders um, non of society, so to speak, marginalized people, and God's love is clearly evident that he'll take in anyone and he will respond to anyone, he'll love anyone. And we wanted to look at that and we wanted to examine that, but ask ourselves, which oftentimes most Christians do ask themselves this, what does that mean now? What does that, what does that mean going forward? If I understand that the greatest king is Jesus, and the greatest story is of Jesus coming here for us and us being able to receive his love and know him and be in relationship with him. What, how does the story go on? What's the epilogue, so to speak, and where's my place in that? So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to push Story of the King just a little bit further. Unfortunately, I think we will lose all the beautiful decorations in the next couple of weeks, but we'll probably stay with the same graphics just as a reminder of how awesome and how great Christmas was and what are we going to do now. So we're going to look at a little tiny passage in Luke. We're going to, we're going to look at the events immediately following Jesus' birth. This is one week later. Um, in the, in the chronology of the scriptures that Jesus is being taken obediently by his parents to the temple. We're going to look at that today. 
Next week is Lord's Supper, and so even those online, um, prepare for that. Know that you're going to need some kind of element, some kind of juice, liquid that you can take with us at home, and make sure you have some kind of bread or cracker that you can do. We'll have that here in the room, um, and we'll have it in safe containers as we continue to deal with the onslaught of, of COVID, and we'll have it in individual containers so that everything's as safe as we can possibly make it here in the house, and um, we'll have that ready for you and be looking forward to that experience, and then we'll come back one more time, and we'll look at Jesus in his preteen years, and an incident in a time where his parents and he go into Jerusalem and go to the temple, um, and like most preteens, the, the situation goes a little sideways. It feels awkward saying it that way, because I don't think of Jesus as a preteen who um, doesn't leave the mall with his parents at the right time and, and this crisis develops. It's hard for me to think of the son of God as that 12-year-old, um, but we'll look at that and we'll, again, make application. What do I do now? What do I do now that I know the story? What do I do now that I know the king and I have a direct relationship with him? So first week, we're back in Luke and we're back in the life of Jesus in chapter two. It begins in verse 21 and we're gonna look at four characters, three groupings. We got Mary and Joseph, they're with Jesus, taking him to the the temple, and it describes the obligations, and we'll look at that. We've got Simeon, who we don't know anything really about. All we know about Simeon is we presume, because there's lots of talk about his death and his upcoming death, we presume he is an older man. And then we look at Anna, who is a widow. We have chronology on Anna. Anna has grown up as a young girl in Judaism. She, she had married, and her marriage was only seven years long because she was widowed. We don't know anything about her husband, who he was, how he died, but after seven years, he passes away, and Anna makes the decision to dedicate the remainder of her life as a widow to simply just serving in the temple with their equivalent to church there and praying. And she has done that now for 84 years. And so putting the chronology together, Anna is a lady who is somewhere over 100 years old. And she meets Jesus on this day that they go to the temple to go through the rituals that were a part of the requirements of their faith. These people that have the opportunity to interact with Jesus in the first week of his life And one of the unique things about them is they've all been anticipating. Mary and Joseph, they've been anticipating who Jesus would be and what it would be like to know the Son of God personally. And of course, in Mary's case, very intimately, having conceived the Son of God in her womb and now holding that in her hands and knowing him intimately now at the temple. Simeon, who has been anticipating, who has been waiting for a pretty undisclosed period of time, but the impression is the majority of his life, because he had been promised by God, he had heard God speak in his heart, the same way you and I hear God speak. Oftentimes, we we tend to ignore it because we think it's just something happening in our conscious, but God tends to keep reminding us, and he'll say, do this, or or, don't do this, or, or go this direction, and Simeon's been listening, and he's been hearing God, and he's been waiting because God told him in his heart, he heard it and he knew it, that you will meet the Messiah before you pass away. 
that you're going to be a part of this most important moment in history. You will meet Jesus, the Messiah. Of course, he doesn't know until this moment that his name's Jesus, but he knows he's going to meet him. And then Anna, this lady over 100 years old, doing her activities, doing her prayer, faithfully living out her life, and she is there, we believe, guided by God into that moment to meet the Messiah. I wonder how many times in the century of her life, and particularly in those last 84 years, after all the earlier expectations of of marriage and life and career and vocations, she wondered, why am I still here? We don't have any impression of anything other than she spent the majority of her time praying, waiting to see what God wanted to do. And God rewarded her faithfulness by letting her hold the Messiah, letting her see Jesus living faithfully. And so the story becomes known. We move now beyond shepherds and we move now beyond just the immediate family, parents of Jesus into the public realm and we find faithfulness over and over again. Mary and Joseph in verse 21. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, these are laws that were given by Moses in the book of Leviticus that described how you lived out and how you expressed your faith during the process and after childbirth. They brought him up to, the, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, to literally make a dedication of their child, just as it is written in the law. Every firstborn male should be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law. And because of their financial stance, because of where they were fiscally, they offer the poorest sacrifice, two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Mary and Joseph. I mean, I can't imagine what it must be like to know that the child you're holding, the child you're nursing is the son of God who is going to bring salvation for the entire world, past, present, and future. And yet, what we find them doing in this amazing moment is obeying the laws of their faith. The dictates that had been given and had been handed down from generation to generation, that same generation that Mary sang about and acknowledged that the mercy of God would come on every generation. And now they're going to obey those laws. A demonstration of dedication, a demonstration of obedience. And I'm not saying other than out of our own personality, out of my own personality, the tendency to sometimes buck up against regulations. And most of us now, because Jesus, the king is here, because the story is fulfilled, most of us now, we don't think about regulation. We think about relationship. What I love about knowing God and what has transformed my life these, all these years is that I'm in relationship with him. He has called me his friend. He has called me his servant. He has, has called me literally on my life to give it to him and to live for him. And those experiences have all been valuable and meaningful and worthwhile. But none of that's really developed for Mary and Joseph. And so they do what is proper. They do what is correct. 
They follow the legislation. They follow the regulations of their faith, not the government, but of their faith. They do a simple, obedient moment when they say, this is what we're supposed to do and this is what we're going to do. And I wonder about us as we we come out of a great Christmas and we move into a new year and some of us still have some breaks ahead before we have to go back to work. What about us? What will our faith require of us this year that we might have to just simply sit down, make that decision, this is what we're told to do and this is what I'm going to do. It's not that the relationship is invaluable, But there are times, even in relationship, we have obligations, we have responsibilities. And it is a part of our faith to accomplish and complete those responsibilities and those obligations. What will I need to do this year that requires me to comply with what God desires of me? At what, what point do I, I even move beyond the, 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 the acronym of asking what would Jesus do? But I ask myself, what will I do with what I already know Jesus would like me to do? Obedience sometimes is difficult. And we live in a unique time when freedom is mistaken into an interpretation or a definition that implies if you want to be free, then you don't have to do what you should do or what you ought to do. Where am I going to be tested this year? And how do I want to complete and fulfill that test correctly? By doing what I need to do, by doing the right things. And of course, from our perspective, the only way to know how to do the right things this year is to read the Bible. Is to start studying it, I've already spent some time looking through plans on, uh, we use the, the Bible app, YouVersion, um, from Life Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. We use that Bible app here at our congregation to find a plan that keeps me on target. I had a plan last year, and one of the things I will do this week is decide and determine how will I study, how will I understand, how will I grow in my understanding of Scripture, not just so I can teach. Hopefully, I'll study it well, and I'm able to teach but I'm talking about the personal side now. I'm not talking about what's expected for me next Sunday. I'm, actually, I'm talking about what God would like me to do. And will I do it? And I want to do it. You know, Simeon is amazing to me. Here is this guy who's, who's faithful, really in his perspective about life. He's described, we know nothing about him. A lot of people assume he's a priest, but there's no indication that he's a priest. For all we know, he's a local tradesman, a local businessman, and he's at the temple because he's been worshiping, he's been praying. Maybe he's been seeking, God, what is it you want me to do and, and how can I do that and how can I implement that in my business? It just describes him as a man in Jerusalem. He gives us his name, Simeon. The only de- real descriptive is in the, that first verse there in verse 25, This man was righteous and devout. And he was looking forward to Israel's consolation, which is the comfort that would come when the king, who is central to the story, is present and lives out his purpose. These are what we know about him. He's righteous, he's devout, and he's anticipating. He has confidence. 
has confidence that God has said and demonstrated and acknowledged and articulated his plan, and he's confident that God's going to fulfill his plan. And I kind of joked at the beginning, but because it's on my mind, because I knew what I was teaching, but I wonder how confident will I be this year? Because I already know the plan. I know the very end of all the chapters in the story of a king. I already know it. Will I live this year with that kind of confidence, with that kind of anticipation? Will I wake up tomorrow morning and will I go about my activities and do the things that are on schedule for tomorrow? But will I do it with the anticipation? Today might be the day Jesus comes back. And truthfully, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, this is partially because of vocation and calling, um, but I just think it would be really cool if Jesus came back while I was at church. After I greeted everybody, because my favorite part of church is saying hi to everybody, I just think it would be cool if, like Simeon, I was at church and Jesus comes back and we are lifted up and gone together. I know heaven includes everybody, so I don't want it just to be First Baptist Church Tomball. Um, but it'd be kind of cool if we had our own section, at least when we arrived. We, we're used to worshiping together. I am, I am grateful. I've lived in the inner city. I've lived um, in countries that have, where I was the minority, I mean, in, in states where I was the minority. I like multicultural environments. And, I, and in, in Revelation chapter 21, when it talks about every tongue, every tribe, every nation worshiping together. It seems really cool to me that I can worship God simultaneously with people who are not speaking the language I'm speaking. And I'm, I'm excited that I can worship simultaneously with people who have lineages nationally that are different than mine. I am excited about that moment. But it'd be kind of cool if we had our own section just for a little bit and had some time together before the throne. Jesus is coming back. Now, I don't have a promise that I can tell you that like Simeon, God has said to me, you're not going to die until I come back. But I will tell you this, deep in my heart, and many believers I know, within a few days of becoming a Christian, I had this sense I might see Jesus' return. Now, the reason I hesitate to say that, and I want to make it real clear to my friends, if that doesn't happen and you are attending my memorial service and you're sitting there thinking, he was wrong. <laughs> There's two things I want you to think. Two things. The first one is, it won't be the first time. <laughs> and the second one is, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm not regretting it. I will be in Jesus' presence one way or another. That's what, that's what Simeon was doing. He was waiting to that moment, and that moment comes, and he gets to see the Messiah, and he is, as he's in the temple, literally get it, guided by the Spirit, he's in the temple, and the parents come in. They're not anticipating this, but he was anticipating something, and Simeon takes him up, takes the baby Jesus in his arms, he, he takes them up and says, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace. As you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel, which is a significant statement. 
because they're in the temple. So we've only got pure Jews in this story at this point. But Simeon saw a salvation that was beyond one nation. And when he cries out that this will be a light to the Gentiles, there are some purists that would have been there that day that would have been highly offended because the Messiah was only for the Jews. But Simeon understood the Messiah, the story of the king is for everyone. And in being for everyone, he would become the glory of Judea. He would become the glory of Israel as we all became one new family, one new nation, one new holy priesthood who define ourselves as followers of Christ. What an amazing moment and what tremendous faith and confidence. And then you have to just love Anna, just the faithfulness. And we, we struggled on, on the terminology here. We, we, we landed on piety, and so if you're looking at the notes on version, it's faithfulness and piety. But the reason we struggle is because we're just overwhelmed at the spirituality, the raw godliness of this lady. It's just hard to even imagine what happened in her life. You know, a young girl, betrothed, engaged, gone through that process, which is nearly two years, married, enjoying the time with her husband. There's no indication that there's any children from that marriage. The indication is it's just her. At the prime of her life, for whatever reason we don't know, her husband was taken from her. And instead of losing control or direction or being lost in the brokenness of that grief, she decides to live exclusively forever for her God, her Savior. We are, I am, let me just, let me just go ahead and be honest on that and make it very individual. I am so enamored with so many things this life has to offer. And that's not bad. Everybody, right, right as soon as I said that, probably everybody in here and everybody online just kind of cringed and thought, oh my gosh, here it comes. You know, I'm too materialistic. And I, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, there are a lot of things that if I lost them, I don't know how I could go on. But I look at Anna and realize you can lose everything because in her time, in her generation, losing her husband was literally losing everything. Income, security, purpose, direction, everything was lost in that moment. But she etched out of her piety, out of her spirituality, out of her godliness, a meaningful and fulfilling life for the next 84 years, worshiping praying. The impression I have, and it's probably because I'm a pastor, is she's that lady who wanders around the church, picking up things, cleaning things, straightening things, whatever needs to be done, she's there. And I think, Lord, this year could have a lot of difficulty ahead of it. It has the potential for that for every single one of us. But will I respond to any loss? Would I respond to any difficulty? Would I, will I respond reminding myself that my sole purpose, my sole identity, my sole meaning in life is not in the things that are a part of this world, but the things that are a part of you, 
my relationship with you. And I can carry through anything that happens to me if I stay centrally focused on Jesus. I've said it before, most of us in here have said it, and I'm sure most listening online have said it. I just want to be a man of God. Whatever my circumstances, my circumstances are great right now, so I'm not anticipating anything other than I know this world has fallen, and as a result, bad things do happen, even to righteous, godly people. But I want to be like Anna. I want my righteousness, I want my godliness to carry me through anything and Jesus to be the absolute priority of my life. Because it's no longer the story of a king. It is now the story of James knowing that king. It's not about religion. It's not about culture. It's not about many of the things we use to define ourselves. It's about the fact that God is now my friend because I believe in his son. We're in a relationship. And in 2022, I want to live that relationship every moment.